If you would be taking your Bible and be turning to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah, towards the back of the Old Testament, of course, one of those that uh, is very, very short, and if you're flipping through, you may flip past it several times before you uh, go through it. Maybe one of those you kind of got to sing the song in your head or, or say the books in your, in your head to try to find it there, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And we are continuing our studies in what we've called the Book of the Month Club, and we've been in particular here around the minor prophets, and we have said each time that maybe the better way to describe the minor prophets is not that they are lesser or minor in importance, but of course they are the shorter prophets. I was interested, I was trying to look real quick after lunch there in my office, but uh, Jonah is very short, only four chapters. Each chapter uh, is not very long, more than 17 or so verses is the longest in chapter one, uh, but it's really not the shortest or even close, especially if you include the New Testament, you think about first uh, and set, or second and third John in particular, and Jude, uh, books like that. And even with the, the Old Testament, with these shorter or minor prophets, it's not uh, one of the smallest per se, but it, it is very, very short. Now, that being said, everybody knows about Jonah, right? If you were to ask somebody about uh, Obadiah or even Joel or Micah or some of these in the back half of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zephaniah, they'll say, I have no idea what we're talking about. But even with as short as Jonah is, of course, the story that is included is well-known, well-told. And we're not going to go through the story, but I wanted to encourage you this morning at the end of the service with kind of a preview of the lessons because I do think we have some interesting things to point out that maybe you thought of, maybe you haven't thought of before uh, when it comes to this idea of Jonah. I want to give you three different ways uh, to break down the book because they're very short. And so if you like to make notes, uh, I want to give you advance notice. The first way, they'll all begin with Jonah running. And so I don't know if you want to put that as a title and then number one to four, but they're all Jonah running. One way that we might break the book down is to think about all four chapters and Jonah running. Number one, or the first chapter, is Jonah running away. Jonah's running away from God. You know the story well. We'll touch on it here as we go over this first section or this first outline. Uh, but of course, he's told to arise and go to Nineveh, verse 2, but instead he's planning to go to Tarshish in verse number 3. And so essentially, he's made up his mind and he's going to run away from God, or at least try to. Uh, the story of Jonah is of great importance in a lot of ways. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. But certainly, we understand that sometimes we try to run away from God. Now, if you have your Bible opened there to Jonah, you'll see that most of the story that we tell our kids is found in chapter 1, right? And even on over to the end there of chapter 2, although most of chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. But the idea of him fleeing, going to the boat, uh, you know, them having the troubles on the boat or the storm that arises, and then him, be, him being thrown into the sea, and even up to him being swallowed by the great fish is all found simply in chapter 1, which we could call Jonah running away from God. Chapter 2, we might call it Jonah running to God, running to God. Now, Jonah in chapter 2, of course, really even the end of chapter 1 gets a disciplinary lesson, does he not? When we say our kids need discipline, very often we mean spanking is what we mean. They need discipline. Jonah, of course, doesn't get a spanking per se here, but he gets a, a disciplinary lesson that's kind of creative, right? Sometimes we try to come up with ways to get our kids' attention or teach them a lesson. 
Uh, we can't really control if they're going to be swallowed by a fish, but this is a pretty good way to try to get Jonah's attention. And so really, again, if you look in my Bible, which is the New King James and a, just a particular brand or version here, uh, the, the offset type lets me know that this is Jonah's prayer. He cries out to God, and in verse number two, then he is going to uh, have this prayer. So he's running to God. He prays to God, and he even repents. Repentance is going to be a big part of our application lessons here in just a few moments. Now, let's go ahead and have this discussion here. What was he swallowed by, right? Everybody wants to know. Was it a whale or was it a great fish? Depending on the version that you're looking at, probably almost all of them say in verse number 17 of chapter 1 that he was swallowed by a great fish. But as you know as well as I do, that most people say it's a whale. Now, Put your finger there or hold your place and turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 40. If you have a marker of some sort, you might want to throw it in Matthew 12 because we're going to kind of go back and forth a couple of times here. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 40. I don't know as you're turning there if any, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but would anybody be willing if you turn to Matthew 12, 40, does anybody have whale in their Bible in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40 that will raise their hand? I see a couple. If you've got a King James Version, or maybe even an American Standard Version, it does say whale. And the reason I only point this out to you is, I know sometimes if you're like me, this is one of those things that when somebody says, well, Jonah was swallowed by the whale, you go, oh, I don't know that he was. We're not supposed to say that. And sure, the word there kind of means great fish. Actually, if you're making notes, the word in the book of Jonah is, it's spelled D-A-G. D-A-G in Hebrew, but it's kind of pronounced dog. As a, but it's spelled D-A-G, but that's the word. We get whale in Matthew chapter 12 because of the Septuagint. So if you've been in our Wednesday night class talking about the translation of the Bible, we've talked about the L-X-X, the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's what a lot of people would have used. We might believe that maybe even uh, you know, a lot of folks are quoting from the Septuagint. And that word, though, in the Hebrew, it could mean any kind of great sea monster, or great fish. So maybe the more accurate way is to say that it was a great fish, but the truth is we're, we're unsure. You know, we don't know exactly. Uh, it doesn't exactly matter. You know, if you were walking in a place maybe and somebody says it was Jonah and the whale, I wouldn't suggest necessarily just because of that you walk out. Uh, you know, maybe if they say that a person doesn't have to believe and be baptized, you know, maybe that's when you need to kind of draw a line. But, but understanding that, yes, uh, in the King James in particular, you'll see whale in Matthew chapter 12. But he is swallowed by some form here of a great fish. All right, back to our outline. Number three, chapter three, is Jonah running with God. He's running with God. He's on course with God and God's will for him, right? We touched on that this morning, God's desire. God's desire all the way back in chapter one for him was that he go and preach. He'd go out and cry out against the city of Nineveh for their wickedness. Well, here he is back on course with God's will for him. He is now running with God. He goes to Nineveh. And I know I'm going to step out on that ledge here, but look in chapter 3 and verse number 4, and you see a preacher preach an eight-word sermon. And don't get your hopes up, all right? And you know you can't, you're not getting that out of me. An eight-word sermon, chapter 3 and verse 4. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or underlined it in your Bible. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's running with God because he has an eight-word sermon that converted an entire city. 
Now, table that. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But he converts an entire city. Now, is, the, is that the only words he said? And once again, the answer truly is we are not sure. Could that have been the only thing he said? I think it's possible. Question, have you ever considered that maybe the mariners that were on that boat showed up maybe at Nineveh or someone did showed up at Nineveh and told the story of what had happened and maybe word begins to spread around? That's possible. The Bible doesn't record there that this is the only thing he said. It may be true that he said some other things as well, but as it's recorded for us, it's an eight-word sermon that is very, very successful. All right, chapter 4 then. Chapter 4 is Jonah running ahead of God. He's running ahead of God because what happens? Well, we know from chapter 3 in those short 10 verses, after verse number 4 in his sermon, they repent. They repent and even the king in verse number seven or verse 6 and 7 is going to cause it to be proclaimed throughout the city what has taken place. And so in chapter 4, Jonah is running ahead of God because now he wants to be the one who is deciding who is going to live and die. If you remember chapter 4, he is upset. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. He's so angry. He says in verse number 3, let me die. I'd rather die than live. And then you may recall that in, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter, there is the story of the gourd or the story of the plant. And the story, of course, is that Jonah's wishing to die. Verse 6, the Lord God prepared a plant or a gourd uh, that comes up over him and shields him uh, so that when the sun comes and the wind blows in verse number 8, uh, that he's still wishing for death. Uh, excuse me, then that's after verse number 7. Sorry, I got a little out of order there. But verse number 7, this is the next day dawns that God prepared the worm and then the plant withers. And so when that comes, then he's asking for death again. And of course, in verses 10 and 11, God sort of gives him that reprimand. He gets reprimanded twice, right? That reprimand, excuse me, you're tired of a, you're worried about a plant? You're concerned about a plant dying, and yet you're not concerned about these souls, an entire city of souls. That is what you should be concerned about, not this little plant and essentially yourself as well. So Jonah runs away from God, to God, with God, but unfortunately in the end, the last we read is he's running ahead of God a little bit. I want to give you two more just because they're real simple. And if you like to make notes and you have them, maybe in a notebook, it's real easy. The second one here is going to be entitled Jonah Envy. Jonah Envy. And if you want a number to four again, that's fine. Uh, Jonah Envy. Number one, Jonah in the ship, right? Chapter one, of course, he finds himself in the ship. Number two is Jonah in the sea. As he is in the sea and going to have that time of being in the fish's belly of prayer. Number three is Jonah in the streets. He's uh, then preaching to the people. He's going to go to Nineveh as God comes to him the second time and encourages him to do that, and he does it. And then chapter 4 is Jonah in the sun. And, of course, that goes back to the story of the, uh, the gourd there or the plant at the end of the chapter. So Jonah in the ship, the sea, the streets, and the sun. The last one here, and it just kind of helps tell the story again in a little bit different way, but four versions, they're all going to start with the letter P, but four versions of the prophet. So the first one is the prejudice prophet. The prejudice prophet. He's prejudiced, right? We're going to get to that in a second, in just a little bit more. But he's prejudiced against the people of Nineveh. He doesn't want them to hear the good news, essentially. And so he's prejudiced. He's the prejudice prophet. Number two, chapter two, he's the penitent prophet. 
Oh, he was big and bad in chapter 1. You know, I'm not going to do what God says. I'm going to run away and I'm going to try to hide. But as he is found out, as we all are, he has to become penitent or repentant, of course. Penitent prophet. Number three, he's the preaching prophet. He's got the message, whether it is short or whether it is more than that, we may not know. But he is the preaching prophet who has great success. Hey, I mean, he really does, as we read about here. And then chapter 4 is the pouting prophet, the pouting prophet. What a man, what a story here. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with us teaching our children mainly the story of the great fish or the whale or the, the animal there that swallows him. But boy, we miss out when we don't think about the full picture of Jonah, even if we don't get a lot. So that leads us to our next section here. Let's talk about a few things that we know about Jonah. And the first answer to that is we really don't know a lot. We don't get like his history or how old he was or all of these things. It does tell us his father in chapter 1 and verse number 1. It says he's the son of there, but, but that's about it. But let's talk about what we do know. We know that he is the only prophet to go on foreign soil. So we might call him the first foreign missionary. I don't know how many of you have gotten to go on foreign mission trips. Those are important. So are our stateside we call mission trips maybe to other parts of the country. Uh, but some of you have been on foreign mission trips. We might call uh, here in the sense Jonah the first foreign missionary. Many times the prophets in the Old Testament go where? Well, they go to the Jews and they're, tell, they're preaching on behalf of God. You need to repent. The message is very similar, but they're only going to, to the Jews. And so he's a foreign missionary here. We might notice in the next place that he is proud. He's proud, but he's also prejudiced, as we said a second ago. Proud, but prejudiced, and you might even throw in there patriotic. Patriotic. He's patriotic about his country. Again, maybe included in that is prejudice a little bit. Uh, and we see here that maybe a little bit, sometimes patriotism maybe can be a little bad. If we put it in the place of God, I, I love our country, love so many things about it. I don't stand, mean to stand here and get in politics or anything. And, uh, you know, we know there's trouble and we love other things and the freedoms we have. Uh, and we want to be proud of those who have sacrificed their lives, those who have just sacrificed their time and been a part of our military. And we want to be patriotic, but we do certainly have to be careful that that doesn't take the place of God. Let's notice next that he was, he's the only one of the minor prophets that's mentioned by Jesus. The only one of the minor prophets that's mentioned by Jesus. But connected with that, he's the only of the minor prophets that's likened unto Jesus. He's the only minor prophet likened unto Jesus as well. Don't go there now. We'll go back in a second. But again, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus himself says that he is likened unto the Son of Man or Jesus. So he's the only minor prophet. There's not a mention of Joel or Amos or Obadiah that Jesus is like them. But he is like Jonah, and we read about in the New Testament. We might notice, I don't know if it's number four or five in your notes, but Jonah has the greatest case of conversion on foreign soil. The greatest case of conversion on foreign soil. I want to ask for a show of hands, but again, some of you know you've been on foreign mission trips to Nicaragua or other places like that, maybe foreign, foreign mission fields. This... <laughs> This was a mission trip. This was a successful mission trip. I, some of you have been. I've got to go on one myself when I was in high school. We never converted the whole city. We never converted the whole city. This is a mission trip. But here's the thing. You know what's ironic about it the most? 
the preacher is upset with it. He's upset that the whole city repented. Now, just like we joke about you on the shortest sermon, only eight words, well, there's not a preacher that wouldn't want the whole area to be converted, right? 100% success rate, and yet he's mad about it in the end. Everyone uh, repents. This is a preacher goal, but he's not happy. He's upset with it. But he does have the greatest case of conversion on foreign soil. Just a couple of other things that are kind of maybe just worth mentioning to help us think about it. Uh, The other prophetic books mention the preaching. Okay, you know, if you're there maybe and you can flip over to Amos or Obadiah backwards or even going forward to Micah or Nahum, Habakkuk, those are, pre- those are the words of God. They're oracles. They're preaching. They're the message of God. Think about Isaiah. How many times in Isaiah does it say that this is the word of the Lord by Isaiah to the people? Jonah doesn't actually include the preaching so much as what happened. The reason we tell Jonah to our children so much is not only is the story of the great fish kind of interesting, but also it's a story. It's kind of what happened as opposed to the preaching. All these other minor prophets, what we get is their message, a message of repentance, a message of coming back to God. The book, as best we can tell, is written by Jonah. No really arguments one way or the other, but it's interesting, isn't it? If Jonah wrote it, he doesn't paint himself in a very flattering way, does he? I mean, he kind of tells the bad side of what happens. And, of course, that usually encourages us to think about the Bible being inspired. If the Bible is inspired or if it's not inspired, if it was just written by man, what would we do? Uh, I think I'm going to cut that part out, right? I don't want to include what I did that was wrong. But Jonah doesn't paint himself in a very flattering way. uh, And so it's sort of like a public confession. Do you remember when we talked about uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes? Do you remember that Ecclesiastes was was kind of by Solomon, it was kind of like this case of, hey, I messed up and I want to tell you what I did wrong. You know, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. I tried everything. I tried money. I tried women. I tried all of this stuff and it was nothing compared to serving God. Jonah is kind of the same way. It's like a public confession. I messed up. I tried to hide. I tried to run away. And these are the problems that I had. The theme of the book, if you'd like to write that down, or the message of the book is repentance. But who does it apply to? Well, it applies to Nineveh, right? That's the very beginning. Arise, go, and preach to Nineveh. But it also applies to Jonah. Jonah had to be penitent in chapter 2, and he really needed to be penitent in chapter 4, although it kind of leaves us hanging, so to speak. We're not quite sure. We don't get the nice bookend of exactly how Jonah's life The rest of it went and what happened. Um, But the theme of repentance is important because it applies to Nineveh and Jonah. Before we get into some application points, one other thing I wanted to mention is there's typically three views of the book of Jonah. There's typically three views. The first view is that it's mythical. You know, kind of like the Loch Ness monster. People want you to think that it's mythical. Uh, I heard a, a brother give a lesson one time on this, and he mentioned, he used two different examples. They're actually as recorded as you can, you know, get examples of somebody ending up in a, in a fish, supposedly. I mean, this kind of idea of whether or not this could really happen. Uh, and he kind of shared uh, the writings of someone else. I didn't jot all that down for us to share here. But, but some people say it's not possible. It must be made up. It's just a myth. It didn't really occur. The second thing is some people say it's, it's allegorical or allegory. You know, that it's really just standing for something else. That it really represents Israel leaving captivity, but nothing else. Couldn't be real. Can't happen. 
wouldn't happen to a person not true. So mythical, that's what some people say. Some people say allegorical or allegory. But third, historical. You know who said it was historical? We've already looked at it. Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. Don't take my word for it that it really happened. Take Jesus' word for it. If it's fake, then why is he saying in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, that this is what the Son of Man is like? He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. God says that it's, or Jesus says that it's historical, that it's fact. So those are three views that people sometimes take, but let's take the words of Jesus and understand that. All right, very quickly here. I've got, nobody passed out on me. I've got 10 points, all right? We're going to get through them pretty quick here. 10 application points. We're not going to spend lots of time on, on any of them, but I think you'll see the application you can make. Number one, God is over all people, right? God is over all people. He loves everyone, and he wants everyone to be saved. You know, sometimes when we do this book of the month, we look at an Old Testament example or lesson, and then we think about a New Testament passage, 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish. God is over all people. He loves everyone, and he wants everyone to be saved. Does that include serial killers? Does that include world leaders who do the wrong thing and act in the wrong ways? Does that include murderers? Absolutely, it does. He wants them to. They may not choose to, as we talked about choice this morning, but we see that God is over all people. Yes, Jonah as a messenger of God, but also the people of Nineveh that he wanted to repent. Number two, prophecy sometimes was conditional. Prophecy sometimes was conditional. What's the message of Jonah? The message of Jonah from God is yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Question, what happened in 40 days? The city wasn't overthrown. Why not? Because they repented. Prophecy was sometimes conditional. God wanted them to repent. They did repent. Nineveh was not overthrown. And so we have to kind of need to note that because some people may say, well, God said it and he lied. God said it and it didn't come true. Now, sometimes prophecy was conditional. All the rest of these minor prophets, excuse me, when they're saying to the people, repent, 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 they're overthrown, they're taken away into captivity because they don't repent. They're not willing to change. If they had, God might have relented. He might have changed his mind there in that kind of way. But prophecy sometimes was conditional. Number three, repentance is necessary to be saved. <coughs> Repentance is necessary to be saved. Old Testament message, New Testament message. Yes, in the New Testament, we need to be baptized. We don't have to offer the blood sacrifices, but repentance. I kind of thought about it in three parts. What was the message to Nineveh? Repent. What was the message of Jesus' day while he was alive and John the baptizer? Repent. And then Jesus dies, and what's the message even after that? Repent. Repentance is necessary to be saved. We also see, this is kind of connected, but number four, the power of repentance. 
the power of repentance. Why? Notice, if you, if you had your Bible open there to Jonah, look in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. The power of repentance. Notice, what does it say? God saw their works. We say it every time just about repentance is a change of the mind that leads to a change of life. God didn't say, well, I know they're thinking it in their hearts. I know they're just really good people and they're trying real hard. God saw their works. And so that was why when they repented, he did not destroy or overthrow them as he had said. Notice this, repentance happens in the mind but is seen in our life. We talk sometimes about not just making wet sinners. Why do we say that? Well, it's because we can bring everybody up here and immerse them in water, but they've got to repent. I gave you a little preview about next Sunday. I'd like for us to talk about that. What is necessary for a person to be baptized and to be saved? It's repentance. If you want to say, come forward and say, well, I want to be baptized, but you never repent, then are you really baptized? Those are the kind of things that we've been thinking about. And repentance is something that does happen in our mind, but it shows forth in our life. We change our ways, the power of repentance. Number five, no one can hide from God. No one can hide from God. Oh, we sure try. Oh, the works of darkness, usually we think stay in the dark. Nobody's around. Nobody saw. It's not a big deal. But no one can hide from God, and certainly not Jonah either. Number six, we have to preach God's message. We have to preach God's message. If you're opening your Bible there, I told you to turn uh, to chapter three and notice verse four, the eight word sermon of Jonah, but where did it come from? Look in chapter three and verse two. Arise, God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it. Uh, preach to it whatever you think. Whatever you feel today, whatever you're just kind of in the mood for, that's what you preach. God says, preach the message that I tell you. We have to preach God's message. Again, a New Testament reference. 1 Peter 4, 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. When I'm considering a sermon or sermons, you know, sometimes we talk about maybe political things that are going on or, or laws or things from our world. We kind of use those to help make points. But there is absolutely nothing better than preaching simply the message of God. Jonah didn't get to just decide what he thought was best because if it was up to him, it might have been something that was not true or it might have been false. Preach what I tell you to preach, my message. We need to do the same thing. Number seven, listen to God the first time. Listen to God the first time. Did Jonah have to end up in the belly of that great fish? Of course, the answer is no. How many times have we suffered and we realize if we had just done the right thing the first time, we wouldn't have had to go through that pain and suffering, right? We could go around the room and all of us could give examples of when we thought we knew what was best, we tried our way, we tried to hide, and yet we have to do it God's way. We have to listen to God the first time and it saves us a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of heartache when we simply do what he says to do. Number eight, we need to guard our attitude toward those in sin. We need to guard our attitude toward those in sin. Jonah here, of course, the message to our children is usually the great fish, his repentance, and then him going to Nineveh. But let's not forget chapter four, that he turns out to have the wrong attitude. 
Here's the thing. Think about this situation. Let me see if I can say it right here. It gets a little backwards. We can be right, and people in sin can be wrong, but we can also be wrong in our attitude sometimes. They're certainly wrong in their sin, but we become wrong in our attitude sometimes when we think we're better than or we've got it all figured out or we don't need to work any harder or do any better. We can certainly be right and have the message and the truth and they be wrong, but we can join them as well in that wrongness, if you will, if our attitude is not what it should be. Look, I, I know as well as you, you know as well as me, turn on the TV, open up your smartphone, pull up YouTube, social media, whatever. There's a lot of darkness and sin in this world, and it's easy to get very down at it, about it, to look at people and just sort of write them off and think they're not worth anything. You know, they're past, you know, feeling, as the Bible says. We need to guard our attitude against sin. Jonah seems to stand there and say, I know the message of God. I'm better than you. They won't listen. And that's the wrong attitude. We need to be on guard about our attitude toward those in sin. Number nine, the path to sin is down. The path to sin is down. If you open up your Bibles there, look in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3, where does Jonah go down to? Now, this is a little bit of play on words. Let me say that. I, I'm being a little facetious here, but this is a bit of a play on words. But chapter 1, verse 3, where does he go down to? He goes down to Joppa. He gets on the boat, and where does he go down to? He goes down into the boat. Chapter 1, verse 5, where does he go? He goes down into the ship and is asleep. He ultimately goes down into the water, and then he goes down into the belly of the fish. Again, it's kind of a play on that theme. But sin only takes you down, down, down. It just keeps pulling you in. And that's why I think it's so great, the example that we looked at in Peter this morning, 2 Peter 2.22, as the pig returns to the mud. You ever been stuck in mud before? That's what happens. We can, we can get clean. We can come out of the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life, be forgiven of sin, <clears throat> and yet turn right back around into that mud. And sometimes we just go down, down, down down you ever put one foot in mud maybe right and then you start trying to get that foot out but then you reach down or you put your other foot in it to try to help yourself out and you just go further and further that's what that's what sin is the path to sin is down and we must be on guard about that as well and then tenth and finally sometimes God's people need converting too sometimes God's people need converting too what's Jonah Jonah's a prophet. He's a prophet of God. <clears throat> he should have known better. Sometimes God's people need restoring. And I think that's a great message for us. We don't always <clears throat> think about that when we think about the book of Jonah. We don't always think about being a Christian. Certainly Jonah wasn't a Christian living in the Old Testament time there under the old law. But he was one of God's people who messed up, sinned, and needed to repent. So as we conclude this lesson this afternoon and we extend heaven's invitation and we're about to sing this song of encouragement, have you ever thought about from the book of Jonah that sometimes God's people need restoring too? If you're here this afternoon and you're not a child of God, we'd be singing to encourage you that you would obey the simple plan of salvation and become a Christian. As we always say, if you'd like to study more about that, we'd do it as soon as possible with you. Maybe you're here and you've done that. You would call yourself a child of God, a Christian, trying to serve him. But whether it's sin that's got you down, your attitude has got you down, something else is separating you from God. We're thankful for God's second law of pardon. That when God's people need restoring, it's not, hey, you had your chance, sorry, you're out of luck. 
It's not, hey, you got to get into the water every single time, multiple times a day, every time you mess up. We can repent of our sin, confess those, pray to God for forgiveness, and he is willing to do that so that we can, again, walk in the light as he is in the light. Sometimes God's people need restoring, too. We're thankful for a chance like this that presents itself. If you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'll sing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.